Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network channel, New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with my esteemed guest, Dr. Verid Noam. She is a professor of Talmud at Tel Aviv University. In 2020, she received the Israel Prize for Talmud, the first woman to receive the prize in Talmud Studies. She serves as an editor of the Jewish Studies Journal Tzion and is on the editorial boards of the Journal of Ancient Judaism and Dead Sea Discoveries. In addition to the book we will be discussing today, she has also written two other noteworthy books. One of them is Megillat Ta'anit, Versions Interpretation History, published in 2003 by Yad Bensvi Press. The other is From Qumran to the Rabbinic Revolution, Conceptions of Impurity, published in 2010 by Yad Svi Press. We will be discussing today her book, Shifting Images of the Hasmoneans, Second Temple Legends and Their Reception in Josephus and Rabbinic Literature, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. In 2018, it was selected as a finalist in the National Jewish Book Award for Academic Books. Verit, it's an absolute blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm, I'm tremendously grateful. Uh, to begin, um, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? And were there any formative events in your early life that stimulated the scholar you would later become? Well, I grew up in Jerusalem in a modern Orthodox Zionistic family, deeply engaged in traditional Torah study combined with academic learning. Mm -hmm. I was the youngest in the family and my aspiration has always been to be part of the learned discussion of my older brothers at at the Shabbat table. Mm -hmm. Gradually, this Shabbat table became a metaphor to the Jewish discourse of Torah throughout history of which I wished to become part. You know, there was no yeshiva for girls at that time in which I could study Talmud. So I turned to the department of Talmud at Hebrew U. And in the course of my studies, I became very curious about the emergence of rabbinic culture, which I believe had been a novelty in many respects compared to the biblical and second temple Jewish culture which preceded it. And later I understood that the key to this question is the culture, atmosphere, and literature created in the last centuries BCE, a period of transition of sorts in which the rabbinic phenomenon is rooted. And so this is how I became engaged in finding connections between Second Temple literature, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, Megillat Anit, and rabbinic literature. What inspired you 
to write this particular book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? Well, the Hasmonean Commonwealth had a great influence on Jewish history, even the Western history at large. This is the period which generated the emergence of rabbinic culture and oral Torah. This is the era in which the intersectarian dispute has evolved and in which the Qumran sect was established and its huge library composed. And even the later birth of Christianity is rooted in this period. I wanted to research the image of this period and its heroes in the eyes of contemporary Jews, as well as its reception history through the way early traditions on the Hasmoneans were preserved, transmitted, and reworked in two very different channels, Josephus' writing and rabbinic literature. I was also curious as to the, the extent of knowledge and interest the rabbis had regarding the centuries that had preceded them, namely the Second Temple period. I wanted to uncover the sources they had used when referring to this period. I asked myself, were they aware of Josephus's works as well as to other Jewish extra rabbinic literature? Did they read it? Did they read Greek? Alternatively, if they did not want or could not use Josephus's work as I contend in the book, they must have used some unwritten and unknown Jewish traditions used also by the historian Josephus. So I wanted to retrieve these lost, probably oral traditions and decipher their provenance and aim. I also tried to trace the ways they were adapted by Josephus on the one hand and rabbinic literature on the other. How does your book differ from previous studies on the Hasmonean dynasty and the way it was conceptualized by contemporary Jewish society and later generations? I think there is a difference. Um, past studies examined the overall attitude of entire corpora, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, or rabbinic literature to the Hasmoneans. My book examines a series of Jewish folk tales from the Second Temple period that treat figures and events from the Hasmonean era. These minimalistic historical or legendary anecdotes are preserved in both the Josephan and rabbinic corpora, and I think that they are remnants of a lost Jewish literature, most likely transmitted orally. They probably circulated in the streets of Jerusalem during the century-long leadership of the Hasmonean dynasty and until the destruction of the Second Temple. Another, another difference between uh, what this book does and previous scholarship is that um, the scholarship has examined Josephus' attitude towards the Hasmoneans based on his writings and his treatment of his historiographical sources like First Maccabees, Nicolaus of Damascus, Strabo, and also the way he used the material from his previous book, War, in composing antiquities. Uh, the rabbinic attitude toward the Hasmoneans is usually surveyed through compilation of halachic and agadic statements from Tanaitic and Amoraic sources that touch on the Hasmoneans. What I try to demonstrate in my book is that Second Temple period Jewish traditions concerning the Hasmoneans have to be defined as an early independent source that was secondarily introduced 
into both corpora um, because I think previous scholarship has been flawed on two accounts. First, by its failure to make chronological distinctions between the texts, the previous um, traditions that were embedded into these corpora. And second, by its lack of recognition of the reductional role assumed by Josephus and rabbinic literature. Let me explain, okay? Um, thus, for example, the tradition of Yanai's, Janus's deathbed instructions to his wife, in which he speaks a lot about the Pharisees, were perceived by scholars as Josephus's attempt to defend either the Pharisees or alternatively King Janus. On the other hand, the legend of the rupture with the Pharisees in its Talmudic version was understood as representing a rabbinic viewpoint that the Hasmonean rulers should have relinquished the high priesthood. To my mind, all these stories preceded both Josephus and rabbinic literature and featured their own messages. Moreover, at times, the corpus in which the tradition is cited imposes a contrary view on the story, either through its incorporation in a conflicting framework or through interpolation of subversive statements into the original story. So I think that a fresh perspective on the shifting attitudes toward the Hasmoneans can be gained by correctly distinguishing between the ancient embedded stories and their purposeful reduction in the Josephan reworking on the one hand and in the reduction and transmission of rabbinic literature on the other. Um, I think, for example, if we take one story, uh, if we look at the corresponding versions of a specific ancient tradition that concerns Judas Maccabeus's battle with the Seleucid officer Nicanor, which was embedded in the books of Maccabees in Jewish antiquities of Josephus and in several rabbinic sources. If we compare them, we discover that uh, the rabbis omitted the hero's name only in the rabbinic versions. Uh, the, the hero is Judas Maccabeus in Maccabees in Josephus, but when we arrive at the rabbinic sources, suddenly there is no name. There is one of the Hasmoneans, and this supports a claim of deliberate censorship on the part of the rabbis who were, for some reason, not interested in, uh, uh, in mentioning uh, Judas Maccabeus, who is absent from their entire literature. And you can discover this only by comparison of these ancient stories, which are embedded in, in the different corpora. Um, another difference, I think, between this book and previous scholarship is that most studies take an overall view of the Hasmonean portrayal in rabbinic sources. And my study considers uh, the attitude towards the, the Hasmoneans by generation rather than collectively. I think there is a different difference between the military account of Judas's uh, victory over Nicanor and the miracle legend of John Hyrcanus in the temple and between the latter and the totally different genre that echoes the internal conflicts of Yanai Janius and his sons. And uh, the last unique um, trait of this book, I think, 
um, is the fact that the legends on the Hasmoneans serve me as a lens through which I can decipher the nature of the relationship between the parallel stories preserved in Josephus and in rabbinic literature. Dependence, as some argue, or mutual reliance on traditions and memory available to both, which is the thesis I propose. So um, I think these are the, uh, the special characteristics of this present book. How were Josephus and the rabbis similar and different from one another as narrators and storytellers? Um, so I'll begin with, uh, with the similarities. Both rabbinic literature and Josephus's works reflect an early Jewish cultural heritage of halakha, agadah, and exegesis, and also a shared platform of historical events, realia, Jewish lifestyle. This includes halachic hermeneutic aspects shared by both corpora and the striking storehouse of anecdotal traditions concerning post-biblical persons and events from second temple period, from the conquest of Alexander the Great to the destruction of the temple. The historical and legendary figures who are the foci of the parallels include Alexander the Great, John Hyrcanus, Alexander Janius, Shlamtian, Alexandra, Hyrcanus, Aristobulus, Herod, Miriam, Caesars like Gaius Caligula, Vespasian, Titus, among others. My book compares parallel anecdotes related both by Josephus and the rabbis on the Hasmonean revolt and the Hasmonean commonwealth. So this is what similar, but there are also many differences between uh, the Josephian writings and rabbinic literature. Um, Josephus' writings belong to the historiographical genre as practiced in Hellenistic Roman culture whereas rabbinic literature is religious, didactic, exegetical, and ahistorical in nature. Indeed, Josephus and rabbinic literature present surprisingly different pictures of the same period. For example, uh, Josephus speaks of military and political uh, events, stormy political lives. Uh, his protagonists are people of action, generals, rulers, uh, high office holders, rebels, soldiers, whereas in rabbinic literature, we find a halachic, exegetical, and agadic discourse against the backdrop of the temple and the study house, and the protagonists are rabbis, priests, religious leaders. Uh, for example, it's interesting that uh, in the entire rabbinic literature, from the Mishnah to the Talmudim, Midrashim, etc., there is no mention of the names or deeds of the first Maccabees, the Hasmonean brothers, including Judas Maccabeus himself. Whereas Josephus devotes nearly 400 sections to their deeds. On the other hand, Josephus never uh, mentions the important schools of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai who receive over 250 mentions in the Mishnah alone. Uh, Josephus is also unfamiliar, it appears, with his contemporary, the religious leader, Yohanan ben Zakai, to whom rabbinic testimony attributes responsibility for building the post-destruction Judaism. 
So these are two so different and, uh, and distinct uh, depictions of the, same, of the same period by very different uh, corpora. Another difference, apart from those grounded in the expected gap between historiographical and halakhic conceptual literature, lies in the proximity of the composition to the events. Josephus's works, as is well known, were composed not long after the end of this period, and he personally witnessed its concluding events, I mean, the Second Temple uh, period at large, uh, whereas the editing of rabbinic literature spent some 700 years, and the earliest composition, the Mishnah, was completed around 130 years after the destruction of the Temple. It's interesting that the work with the greatest number of parallels to Josephus is the Babylonian Talmud, which was formulated not only at a temporal, but also at a pronounced geographical culture and, and distance from the events. Um, another dichotomy between Josephus and rabbinic literature is their orientation. Josephus is outer directed, whereas rabbinic literature is inner directed. Josephus, the historian, wrote in Greek primarily for a non-Jewish audience, whereas the Hebrew Aramaic rabbinic literature is an example of internal discourse within the circles of the rabbis and their disciples. Uh, yet another decisive difference is the ability to identify the author. In the opening of the Jewish war, Josephus designates himself, uh, himself as follows. I, Josephus, son of Matthias, a Hebrew race, a native of Jerusalem and a priest, who at the opening of the war myself fought against the Romans and in the sequel was, perf was perforce on an onlooker. And we hear his voice throughout the entire books of war and antiquities. Um, even in the conclusion of antiquities, he concludes with the words, and now I take heart from the consummation of my proposed work to assert that no one else, either Jew or Gentile, would have been equal to the task, however willing to undertake it, of issuing so accurate a treatise as this for the Greek world. Now, in contrast, um, rabbinic literature is collective, partially anonymous, spanning many generations and places, and reflects numerous mostly unnamed voices, redactors, transmitters. Um, this is very different. Uh, I would conclude with the history of the reception of these uh, two very different uh, corpora. Um, I, I would like to, to, to cite uh, the historian Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, who wrote, sometime between 75 and 79 CE, Josephus published his account of the Jewish war against Rome, and then went on to an elaborate summation of the history of his people in the Jewish antiquities. The latter work was published in 93-94, that is less than a decade before the rabbis held the council at Yavne. By coincidence, the two events were almost contemporaneous. Yet, says Yerushalmi, in retrospect, we know 
that within Jewry, the future belonged to the, to the rabbis, not to Josephus. So Jewish tradition actually did not preserve Josephus's books at all and did not transmit them and never studied them, but rather studied rabbinic literature. Um, so in terms of uh, reception history, the rabbinic literature is the one that created and uh, continued in Jewish culture. And uh, Josephus's works were rejected outside Judaism and preserved within Christianity. On the other hand, of course, when we come to the modern period, um, so in modernity, both Jews and non-Jews grant Josephus the priority, of course, in the reconstruction of history over what were now seen as fragmentary legends embedded in a late folk creation lacking historical awareness of rabbinic literature. So we can say that uh, the rabbis shaped Jewish collective memory over generations whereas Josephus shaped modern scholarly historical awareness. And from this, this reason, I think it's quite intriguing to try to compare the, the way these uh, so different and uh, distant two corpora deal with the same period and the same anecdotes. What contribution does your book make to the study of Josephus? Can you situate your book among existing literature on Josephus? How does your book differentiate itself vis-a-vis -vis other recent books on Josephus? Um, in recent years, there is a scholarly debate as to the legitimacy of the study of Josephus's sources. Following the school of new criticism from the uh, half of the uh, 20th century, we find scholars harshly critiquing the use of textual criticism to explain difficult Josephine passages and contradictions. This trend intensified in the latter half of the century by virtue of the postmodern approach, which denies our ability to reconstruct any process of creation, even of a literary work as it was. Instead of the quest for the history of the text, reduction criticism abandons the question of how the texts were formed for consideration of the literary complex as it stands. It seeks to uncover the reducted text ideology and rhetoric and to discover its discourse with its audience. Thus, one of Josephus's major researchers, Steve Mason, downplays the importance of source analysis for an understanding of Josephus. He maintains that Cullen critique does an injustice to the original creative Josephus, portraying him as a careless plagiarist, incapable of noting the inconsistencies he himself created. On the other hand, another famous scholar of Josephus, Daniel Schwartz, sees no contradiction between study of Josephus's sources and investigation, investigation of his aims. He further argued that the first may contribute to the second. 
an accurate mapping of the materials received by Josephus from his predecessors, determination of their reworking and integration into his text and identification of Josephus's own contributions within the sequential narrative clearly point to his attitude and worldview, both as a writer and editor. Uh, I must say that at present we're witnessing a renewed trend in several scholarly fields, for example, rabbinic literature, that suggests an integrated approach to the study of ancient texts, which seeks to reapply source criticism alongside the literary perspective. My study requires consideration of the question of sources at the most fundamental level, for I focus not on colon critique as a tool for understanding Josephus, but just vice versa, on Josephus as a tool for reconstructing the ancient Jewish materials that he used. What can we learn from your book about the relationship between history and memory? So I touched on this a little bit before. You know, various sociologists and historians noted during the 20th century, a very sharp tension between traditional memory and critical historiography. The French sociologist Maurice Halbwax distinguished between collective memory, which reflects a sense of a living, committed, relevant, subjective past, implemented through commemorative ceremonies at holidays and historical research, the frozen reconstruction of a dead fixed past. The historian's efforts to achieve proof-based objectivity and to know the past as it was, severe him, says Halbach, from the present and from the group to which he belongs, pushing him away from tribal consensus to the universal. In other words, he says, history begins where tradition ends. Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi's influential book, Zachor, applied Halbach's insights to the case of Jewish historiography. Yerushalmi argued that Jewish historiographical creativity ceased with Josephus and was fully renewed only in modernity with the beginning of the Wissenschaftes Judentums. This is how the French historian Pierre Noir described memory versus history. Allow me to cite. Memory is life, always embodied in living societies. Memory being a phenomenon of emotion and magic accommodates only those facts that suit it. History being an intellectual non-religious activity calls for analysis and critical discourse. Memory situates remembrance in a sacred context. History ferrets it out. It turns whatever it touches into prose. Memory wells up from groups that it welds together. By contrast, history belongs to everyone and to no one, and therefore for, has a universal vocation. I think my book is an excep exceptional variation of the tension between traditional memory and critical historiography. Living memory is usually portrayed as the product of pre-modern periods and historiography as modern. 
Here in my case, the representative of historiography is an ancient author, Josephus, and the collective memory was preserved in works compiled centuries later, meaning the rabbinic period. So it's the opposite. Moreover, if Halbach, Yerushalmi, and Noah describe historiography as murdering and inheriting living memory, in my instance, Josephus the historian adopted and embedded vestiges of folk legend in his historiography. Additionally, in the case of rabbinic literature, it was not history that ousted memory, but just the opposite. Memory replaced historical sense, as I said before, that the rabbis were not historians. Um, so it's kind of a twist of the usual uh, way we sense uh, the, the tension between history and memory. One theme in your book is the contribution of the Dead Sea Scrolls to our understanding of the Hasmoneans. You devote some significant attention to the Nahum commentary, Pesher Nahum in particular. How are the Hasmoneans depicted differently in documents from Qumran vis-a-vis -vis both Josephus and the rabbis? What can be learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls about the Hasmoneans? The late Hanan Eshel, who was also a good friend, has written a book which reviewed all the possible mentions of the Hasmonean state and contemporary events in the scrolls and subsequent research. In general, the sectarians were hostile to the Hasmonean state and its leaders. Their decision to abandon Jerusalem and live in the desert has probably been a result of their deep disappointment with the Hasmonean state, whose establishment had aroused unfulfilled messianic expectations. The picture in Josephus's writing and in rabbinic literature, I think, is more nuanced. Josephus admires the first two Hasmonean generations and critiques the later three. His narrative frequently exemplifies contradictory approaches due to distinct sources he had used. The excerpts from the Herodian historian Nicolaus from Damascus are much more hostile to the Hasmoneans than Josephus's own narrative or certain Jewish sources he had used. The rabbinic attitude also varies with regard to different figures in the Hasmonean commonwealth. It is especially instructive to compare the depiction of the same figure or event in the Dead Sea Scrolls with its counterpart in the other two corpora. For example, both Josephus and the rabbis relate the same Jewish tradition on a semi-prophecy which John Hyrcanus experienced in the temple. Josephus further describes, quote, the three of the greatest privileges, end quote, that John has received from God, the rule of the nation, the office of high priest, and the gift of prophecy. Whereas Hyrcanus's supporters depicted John as an ideal prophet, victorious leader, and righteous priest, an antithetical negative echo may have been preserved in a Qumran text. In 4Q Testimonia, 4Q175, uh, the author juxtaposes Pentateuchal passages treating a false prophet, a future leader, and Levi's blessings, 
which which uh, uh, have has to have to do with a priest, alongside a passage that based on Joshua cast the deeds of the man of Belial and his sons in a negative light. According to Hanan Eshel, the author of the Qumran Pesher sought to reject political midrashim, which had interpreted the biblical description of the exemplary figures found in the Qumran text, an ideal prophet, victorious leader, and righteous priest, as applying to John Hyrcanus. So you can see a political dispute between this, uh, this Qumran piece and uh, what Josephus tells us about the supporters of Hyrcanus. Um, another example has to do with the downfall of the Hasmonean Commonwealth. A small fragment from Qumran K4, 4Q471a, accuses the sect's opponents of violating the divine covenant. The scroll cites these adversaries as saying, uh, quote, we shall fight his battles because he redeemed us, end quote. The author, however, prophesies that they will be brought low because God despises them. The editors, Menachem um, Kister and Esther Eshel, plausibly conjecture that the foes in question are the Hasmoneans and their supporters with the redemption mentioned by the opponents referring to the establishment of the Hasmonean state and the political successes of the first Hasmoneans. The passage goes on to describe the subsequent downfall of these circles. Indeed, the joyous reaction of the sect to the Hasmonean defeat is well documented in the Psharim as well. In contradistinction, both Josephus and a tradition appearing in the Talmud lament the downfall of the Hasmoneans. They believed that the Hasmoneans' previous victories represented divine redemption and that their eventual downfall was due only to internal strife, which caused the last generation to lose their royal power. As opposed to the Qumranites, who deemed the Hasmonean state sinful from its very inception, Josephus states, quote, there was a splendid and renowned house because of both their lineage and their priestly office, as well as the things which its founders achieved on behalf of the nation. But they lost their royal power through internal strife. So these kinds of political debates regarding the different figures and generations of the Hasmonean Commonwealth can be uh, found along the uh, my research in the book, and it's very interesting indeed to compare the Pharisaic standpoint and later standpoint of Josephus and the rabbis to uh, to the way the Qumran opposition regarded the Hasmonean rulers. You refer many times in your book to the scolion. Can you describe what this source is? How do the stories in the Skolion differ from other canons of Second Temple and Rabbinic literature? Can you contextualize the Skolion for those who might not be familiar with it? Well, I'll begin with a previous work named Megillat Ta'anit, the Scroll of Fasting. 
The scroll of fasting, the name is uh, a bit misleading because it is a list of about 35 dates drawn up in Aramaic and arranged in a calendar order composed towards the end of the second temple period. Its goal, as stated in its opening sentence, is to keep the Jews from fasting, and in some cases even eulogizing the deceased, on certain dates, because on these dates, happy events uh, have occurred, many of them related to Hasmonean victories. The main part of the scroll is a list made up of short sentences, each of which includes a date and a happy event that occurred on it. The various events are referred to in the scroll by means of mere hints, characterized by extreme brevity. The time, circumstances, and protagonists of many scroll events are not explicit, and consequently, almost half of them have remained obscure. Now, because of this, uh, an explanatory commentary in Hebrew was later added to the scroll, known in research literature as the scolion. The intention of the scolion was to identify and elaborate on the events intimated in the scroll. Thus, it adds stories, legends, and homilies of various types relating directly or indirectly to those events. The main part of the scolion was probably appended to Megillat Anit during the Talmudic period. And, um, and uh, since it treats uh, some Hasmonean stories and traditions, it has to do with uh, those uh, historical anecdotes that I discuss in the book. Is it appropriate to think of one Josephus or two Josephuses, what similarities and differences manifest in the presentation of the Hasmoneans in the Jewish war vis-a-vis -vis the presentation of the Hasmoneans in the antiquities? Well, this is a, an interesting question um, because there is a big difference uh, on, on which I base myself in uh, throughout the book. Josephus's two main works, The Jewish War and Jewish Antiquities, which were written in Rome 20 years apart, mark a transformation of Josephus from a Jerusalem priest whose Jewish identity was grounded in the temple and its cults to a diaspora Jew whose identity derived from ancestral tradition, canonical texts, and study and observance of Jewish law. Many scholars, foremost among them Richard Lacquer, have noted that as compared to war, antiquities displays a definitively Jewish perspective. Whereas in war, Josephus denounces the zealots who led to the disruption and praises the Flavian dynasty which destroyed the temple, in antiquities, Josephus takes upon himself the role of an advocate for persecuted, defamed Judaism. Daniel Schwartz has pointed out fresh proofs of Josephus's growing attachment to Jewish tradition while composing antiquities. He elaborates on Jewish customs, defends Jewish law, uses Jewish terminology, which he had avoided in war. And what's most interesting and important for me, 
is that he integrates Jewish folk tales uh, about the Asmoneans, among others, into his ongoing narrative in uh, antiquities, um, uh, which he did not do when he wrote war. I think when he wrote war, he tried to be, you know, uh, a Roman or Hellenistic uh, historian. And uh, he felt, I believe, that it would be inappropriate to integrate folk, Jewish folktale into his narrative. But when he wrote, when some 20 years later, Jewish Antiquities, um, he was more sure of himself and he felt more, he identified more with his Jewish brethren and Jewish history and Jewish tradition. And uh, he let himself use these materials and integrated them, uh, whereas in, in places where in the parallel, um, in the parallel passage in, uh, in war, uh, they are missing. So whenever we see such a Jewish tradition integrated in Jewish antiquities, whereas in war it's, uh, it does not exist, we can deduce, and this Jewish tradition also has a parallel in rabbinic literature, we can deduce that uh, this is indeed a Jewish tradition which Josephus could, uh, could uh, extract from a pool of such traditions that he used, and he chose to use only in this new phase in his life uh, when he... Uh, uh, emphasized his Jewish identity much more than in in the previous work. What can we learn about your book? What what can we learn from your book about the epistemology of silence? What can we learn about the relationship between silence and collective memory? Silence is um, is actually a strategy. I think is is the main rabbinic strategy strategy uh, by which they cope with uh, with opponents and with materials uh, which they are not happy with. So, for example, we now know that uh, throughout the the period of the Second Temple, there was a huge Jewish. Uh, literature composed. We have the, uh, the, the uh, pseudo-epigrapha and um, we have all the works that we found in Qumran about 900 uh, different Jewish works. And most of them uh, were composed in, in uh, Jewish factions that were not rabbinic or not pharisaic and some of them um, stemmed from uh, priestly groups um, which were opposed to the pharisees and which the rabbis later on did not esteem and uh, it's interesting to see how the rabbis simply ignored them they never mentioned throughout the entire rabbinic uh, literature, they never mention any such work apart from one, only Ben Sirah. This is the only book that they mention besides 
the Bible and their own oral materials. So it appears that the rabbis uh, uh, actually decided to um, to uh, reject from the Jewish collective memory and culture which they uh, transmitted on to reject all these counter uh, Jewish cultures and uh, all other kinds of Judaisms that existed um, in their days and in previous centuries. And uh, they actually deleted all this material by simply ignoring it. And uh, actually they succeeded in, in this uh, project as we see that uh, all Jewish generations who had uh, traditional um, um, education, Jewish education, are not aware of all that was uh, composed uh, during these centuries of the Second Temple times. And uh, um, a typical traditional Jew will tell you that all that exists uh, from ancient times is the Bible and then rabbinic literature and nothing existed in between. So I think this is also the reason why um, Josephus is never mentioned and also never used or cited within rabbinic literature. Um, against this background of uh, kind of uh, making us forget um, all the creativity of Second Temple times, the silencing of, of uh, other Jewish cultures and works, um, the Jewish oral traditions, which the rabbis did choose to integrate, become even more important. This is what is left from uh, Jewish memories of Second Temple times. And this is the only things that the rabbis did legitimate. So I would say that uh, the, uh, the attempt to retrieve these lost um, materials and traditions is kind of a way to, um, to cope with uh, silencing um, strategy or attitude of rabbinic literature with regard to the uh, Second Temple period. As we bring this interview today to an end, what are you working on next as your current project? What are you working on now as your subsequent project? Well, I'm currently preparing a new critical edition, including a fresh translation and commentary of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls named Miktsat Maasei HaTorah, Some Precepts of the Torah, for the Oxford Commentary on Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, this scroll is framed as a letter aimed at convincing a political leader of the veracity of the sectarian halachic stance. Its main part is a sequence of polemically formulated legal statements, and they enable recovery of many of the issues fueling the intersectarian controversy of that day. So uh, this is another way of um, 
examining the emergence of rabbinic halakha from the period of the Second Temple times. Thank you for your attention and your erudition, which you shared with us today. It's been the most humble honor to be in dialogue with you and to learn from you so much. As we bring this dialogue to a close, I have been your host, Ari Barbalat, with the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast channel, part of the New Books Network. I have been talking today with Dr. Vered Noam, who is a professor of Talmud at Tel Aviv University. And in 2020, she received the Israel Prize for Talmud, becoming the first woman to receive this prize. We have been discussing her book, Shifting Image of the Hasmoneans, Second Temple Legends and Their Reception in Josephus and Rabbinic Literature, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. This book was selected in 2018 to be a finalist in the National Jewish Book Awards for academic books. Thank Thank you. you so much, Ari. It has been a pleasure.